Academics would call this topic epistemology. That's a, that's a fancy word for, for saying, how do we know what we know? So a lot of attention is given to what we know, and that's the, the data field, if you will, of all these things that people can know, but there remains an, an underlying question, how do we know? How can we come to the truth? How do we know what's right and what's wrong? Upon what basis do we make decisions? If somebody shares something or we read something, how do we know if it's true or not? How do we know what church we should go to? How do we know who we should marry? How do we make decisions? Or we can back up further and say, how do you know that Christianity is the appropriate religion? How do you know that there should be any religion? <laughs> and some of these things to us, we, we inherit them, and so they seem like axioms to people. That's the power of culture, is that we, we don't know what we don't know, and we just take things for granted, oftentimes, without backing up a step and saying, well, is that really true? Amen. And we've just discussed how that's happened with traditions in the church, that people just swallow instead of asking the question, where did that come from, and how do I know if it's true or not? And I think in this room we probably share some basic assumptions, such as that, that this Bible is the Word of God. I think we probably share that, that view with everybody in there. How do we know that? Why are we so convinced that this book is inerrant, or that it contains the words of life instead of the Quran or the... So I know I'm asking, maybe they seem like, well, that's a dumb question. You know, we, we've already settled that a long time ago. We don't have to rehash that. But, but really, I'm asking, what is the mechanism, what is the dynamic through which we make these determinations, each of us? Amen. And this, we, we've said here already today that um, there's nothing more fundamental than our view of God. So a lot of this is going to go towards the question, how do we know who God is? <laughs> and I think that that view of God issue starts in the Bible. Now, now, because we do share an assumption here that the Bible is the Word of God, I'm going to appeal to that a lot, even while we talk about it. Okay, But if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, we see that how you view God is, a, is, is where the big break comes. Right in the beginning, isn't it? where we have two people made in the image of God, walking in relationship with God, trusting Him, believing Him, obeying Him, and then here comes another voice that says, God isn't who you thought He was. Let's talk about a different view of God's motives, and, and then the doubt comes. And, then, and what, is, what is the big promise that is given? You can, you can be God. There is one God, and it's you. <laughs> so, the big promise is you can be like God, and, and how are you going to do that? Know You're going to know good and evil for yourself. You can be the determiner. You can be the one who decides. You can be the one to know. So this question of two different basic approaches to how we know is, is fundamental. It's, it's right in the beginning of, of Scripture. So I think that 
the tendency of the, the modern world, but it's really not just the modern world, it's been the tendency of mankind in the ancient world, has been, well, I'm going to examine it, I'm going to study it, I'm going to think about it, I'm going to amass all the data available, and I'm going to decide. Right? But where is that path really going to get us? Because if we aren't God, are you ever going to come up with all that data? Well, there's a big project going on right now to try to do just that so that we can guide the whole world by this new thing called AI, artificial intelligence, where we accumulate all the data in the world and we synthesize it and we make decisions uh, according to that. And so people are willing to even trust that machine because they say, well, it knows more than I can as a person. It's the aggregate of all of the knowledge that humanity has ever accumulated and therefore it's going to be more trustworthy than my view because I couldn't possibly process all of that data. But this machine can. So we can trust it. But so, it's still just the accumulation of all the things that we put into it from the mind of man. Exactly. So you, you, do you see the dilemma? Um, I, I sometimes like to put it this way. Let's, let's take a, a simple question like, who should I marry? This is a relatable, real question, I presume, for a lot of people. And they say, well, how, how do I know who I should marry? You say, well, this, this lady seems really nice, and, um, but, but maybe this criteria and that, we'll check this and that, but well, what about that one? That one also seems nice. And, and then you start thinking about it, and you say, well, what if there's someone else I haven't met yet? <laughs> <laughs> and if you get on that track, it's going to be a long wait. <laughs> There's a lot of people you've got to meet before you can absolutely know for sure that you found the one, because what if there's a better one? <laughs> you see, so that's just a, a personal example to say, really people make decisions based on something other than data accumulation. When it comes down to it, there's got to be some capacity that God gave us where we can know something according to what we are experiencing and feeling rather than a process of elimination or data accumulation. You see, so there's, did God give us some capacity to make decisions that goes beyond our own grasping for the, for the parts, if that makes sense? And I would say, um, I'm just gonna show my hand right up front, that the real, really the only answer to guiding your life right is gonna be to connect to the source that does see all things, that does know all things. And so how does that happen? And we'll probably explore that more later. But let's talk about how do you know a little bit. Even things like how do we interpret the Word of God? How do we know which translation is accurate? We've, we've uh, talked about that to some degree. How do, you know, people say, I, I, I tried to talk with a relative of mine one time about a, the doctrine of eternal security. And that's not my point here, but she was very steeped in the idea of eternal security. And um, she had motives to be so because she had children that, that had believed in Christ uh, as, a, as a small child and were now living a dissolute lifestyle and she really wanted to believe that they were still saved. But anyhow, uh, when, I, when I started asking some questions about that view, she said, well, listen, I know that I, I, I'm not a Bible scholar, you know, but there are people who have gone to college there are people who have given their whole lives to studying the scriptures, and you know you just got to be able to trust the people that have really that have really done that. And I said, well, I I can agree with that, but I've studied and read people who have 
done that and they tell me two completely different things. How do I know which scholar that studied the scripture their whole life is right? So am I just lost? What do I do? You see the dilemma? Yes. Okay, so we say, well... You're supposed I'm, to trust the expert when they agree with your intuition. Really? Is that how it goes? But when they don't, find another expert. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly my point about, about my, and she's deceased now, but about my great aunt, unfortunately. That's exactly what she was doing, and it's exactly the tendency that we all have. We want to believe the one that is convenient. We want to believe the one, and so we look for evidence that supports what we hope is true, really based on emotional reasons. And then we say that we're just following the science. We're following the data. We're following the scholarship, you know, and we're trusting in that. So even according in the Bible, we say, okay, we just need to look at the Word of God and read it for what it really says. And then we'll just go with the most reasonable interpretation. That sounds reasonable, doesn't it? <laughs> but reasonable according to what? According to who? And then the very word that we're studying says things like this. Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Or Proverbs sees fit to tell us twice that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with the demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Proverbs 3 and 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. 1 Corinthians 1, Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Colossians 2, Brother Howard quoted, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, I, I am proposing, I'm going to just show my hand here and go fast on some of this, that the basic principles of the world that he's talking about, one of those principles is you can know for yourself. You can be as God. You can... You can sort through these things. Notice that the devil does not say, you can do evil and it's going to be okay. He says you can know good and evil, in other words, the difference between the two for yourself. And that's very appealing because we say, well, uh, everyone knows we're supposed to be a good person and all of this, but where do we draw the line? Amen. How do we decide between the two? And he's telling them, well, you can decide for yourself where to draw that line. And when you insert that type of thinking into, into your life and your decisions, it becomes very convenient to be the one that draws the line. Amen. Well, I would never do that, but this is probably okay, this, this part over here. But it allows you to draw the standard rather than finding that standard outside of yourself and being dependent upon a relationship with God ultimately and Amen. through those he, he would send. Can I ask, can I just chime yes. in here? You know, when Dan says, how do we know even the Scripture, or the interpretation of the Scripture is correct or false? And, and he said, somebody says, well, whichever is more reasonable. 
that ultimately begs another question of why should we trust reason? Unless we have complete access to all available data, why should we trust reason? How do we know we're not being deceived? And it's really just as superstitious as any other superstition, but we it's hiding behind a cloak of reasonableness. You know, if, if, I, if someone came to me who was an atheist and said, why do you believe this is the Word of God? And I said, well, it says right here, you know, and I opened my Bible and they'd say, stop, stop, stop. You have to assume it is the Word of God before you can quote from its own source to defend it. And they would be correct. But when I say to someone, why do you, why do you trust in reason? And they open their mouth to give me a reason. They're opening their Bible to reason from reason. They have, we have to assume that reasoning is reasonable before we care about the reason you're going to give for why we should trust reasoning. <laughs> Do you understand? It's in a circle, and it just shows that there's no inherent consistency. You can't be reasonable in your blind trust of reasonableness. There has to be something else, some other input and it, it starts to get to a scary point where we discover that all fundamental starting points are not based in reason. They're based in something else. Is it faith? Is it revelation? Is it relationship? And that becomes the bigger question. When you start down this circle of questions, it does, it gets scary. And you, you can start to feel like, well, how does anybody know anything? Are, are we just lost? And, and honestly, I think Amen. we are. Amen. <laughs> I think we're hopelessly lost unless there's a God who loves us, Amen. who created us, who, who is going to actually be an initiatory force in the world Amen. to reach for us, to reconnect Jesus. with us, and provide a way for us to really know. Amen. Amen. Did, science, did, did science and empiricism save the German people during the Holocaust from the atrocities that occurred there? Was it empiricism that they lacked? Was it science? Was it logic that they lacked? What would have saved them? That certainly didn't save them because all of their top scientists of the most scientific community in the world, Germany had nine out of the world's ten philosophers. Germany produced more books than all other European nations combined. Germany had more uh, advanced um, scientists, uh, Nobel Prize winners, than all the other nations of the world combined. And did it save them from the, the most basest, crude atrocities in, in modern history? No, it did not. What would have saved them? So we, it's not just that it's inconsistent. It, it almost seems atrocious when human beings adopt this model of trust the science. Well, we've got one side saying one thing and another side saying science isn't. Look at the debates today. Look at what they say about global warming. You can get a brilliant scientist to tell you one side persuasively and somebody else to tell you the other side. And you say, well, I don't trust him. I believe, well, okay, but you, you're not trusting the science because the science is contradicting itself. How about during COVID? Trusting the science was like spinning in circles. It was here and then there and then everywhere and up and down and this does matter, this doesn't matter. And it's still changing. Not only did it not save Germany rationalism, it justified <coughs> what they were doing in their own eyes. It was the Holocaust was run by physicians and scientists. 
not by weirdos. Can I read a couple of things on that? Sure. I have a couple of lovely quotes on that. that I was going to say that too. It is worse than that. It's not that it didn't prevent it. It can be argued that it caused it. You know, uh, the German historians, Ali and Heim, say about the Holocaust: to a very large extent, the policy of annihilation was the product of rational argument taken to a mercilessly logical conclusion. It made perfect sense what they were doing. Hitler's final solution was impeccably reasonable based upon his starting point for reasoning, based upon his assumptions. Atrocities were the product of a rationalism in the service of practical policy making which inherently tends toward the abandonment of moral restraint. Here's an interesting thought from a, a, an expert on terrorism named Bruce Hoffman. He says, rather than the wild-eyed fanatics or crazed killers that we have been conditioned to expect that, that a terrorist would be, many terrorists are in fact highly articulate and extremely thoughtful individuals for whom terrorism is an entirely rational choice often reluctantly embraced and then only after considerable reflection and debate. It comforts us to imagine that crazy killers are just people who don't think. Why don't they think before they do things like that? This guy's an expert on terrorism and he's saying they're doing it because they thought long and hard about it and they decided this was the most rational way to achieve their goal. Well, I have a bunch more quotes that we, we could go on and on if anybody doubts that that was what was going on in the Holocaust. It is, it is well documented. It was supervised, planned, and implemented by PhDs and scientists and medical doctors and psychologists and the whole, the whole gamut. Germany was at the peak of the sci modern scientific movement. So the point here is not that science can never be useful or that there's never true things to be found in study or, or things like that. It's a question of faith. Where is our faith? And people argue the other side and say, but emotions are what are going to take you off. And there are whole huge branches of the Christian faith, or that call themselves such, that will explicitly and intentionally shun the very idea that you would uh, follow after something because you started to feel emotional about it. Because emotions are so dangerous. So if you, if you did that because you just felt it, we need, to, we need to shut that down and get back to the, just the, the Word of God. And, and it's spoken as if the Word of God and feelings of the human heart are, are somehow incompatible with each other. And yet those same people are pretty emotional about that uh, viewpoint. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. So, in fact, a point I like to make sometimes is what, just to ask the question, why do we trust our intellect? Why are we so driven to trust our intellect? Because it is the tendency of humankind. I think the history of the world could bear out that blunt statement. Why? Why do we trust it? And I think that going all the way back again to the garden, there is an appeal to our pride, and there is an appeal to our fear. So we have emotional reasons to trust our intellect. <laughs> pride and fear. Yeah. 
makes me think of what Jesus told the woman at the well, where he said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And he said in the same place, the Father is seeking those to worship him, who worship in spirit and truth. And it is true that people tend to, whole churches will focus on certain aspect, and it may even be right and good, to the exclusion of another aspect. And God is trying to bring us to a place of wholeness. When, when Jesus is asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He says that it's the Lord your God is one, and you shall love him. That is an emotion. But you shall love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So it is this full gamut of human experience, human attention, that should be given to God. And so we end up with churches who will, for example, uh, say, uh, it's all about the Spirit. We need to have freedom of the Spirit, and we need to have freedom of the gifts. And, and so then it turns into wildfire, as they call it, where there's no form, and there's no order. And uh, it's just everybody, it's anarchy. It's everybody doing whatever they want and calling it the Spirit. And yes, sometimes God moves there, and sometimes He blesses things in spite of that, but it's, we could say it is um, the liquid content without the form to contain it. And then there's other churches that see that, and they're in reaction to that. And they say, that's crazy, that turns into carnality, that's used as a justification for the flesh and all kinds of things. And so we've got to just stick with the Word and principle, and we're going to be ultra-conservative, and they quench the life of the Spirit. And they have a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. Exactly. Amen. And, you know, it's like... I think even in terms of what we were speaking of in the meeting yesterday about the long view, generational sustainability, you know, neither one of those ditches are going to sustain. It's like if you were... If you're about to, you know you've got a journey in front of you, and you've got to cross the desert, uh, which would you rather have? Would you rather have a gallon of water with nothing to put it in? Or would you rather have a gallon container with no water? <laughs> which one is going to get you there? Neither. So, so one looks at the container and says, I can't, you know, I can't quench my thirst with that container, and he's right. And the other looks at the water and says, that does me no good because I have no way of bringing it with me. And he's also right. They are both essential. So we've got to pray and ask God to lead us into spirit and truth. But again, the question becomes, well, how, how do we get there? Do, do we... Yeah, and, and just asking also, which flatters the flesh more? Yeah. Where, where has human godhood ascended the throne more? except through the intellect. Amen. So if we're going to be scared of both, good. But let's be more scared of intellectualism than we are of emotionalism. Amen. Emotionalism is, yeah, we can all despise it. It's obvious. But where has man ascended the throne to take the place of God but in the universities and laboratories and lecture halls where he makes himself seem that he is above mere mortal emotions. So when the church courts that side, I actually think it's far more dangerous. Amen. 
And once again, I think history would bear that out. Amen. Because, yes, there have been crazy people. Amen. They do crazy things. They even say that they're doing it in the name of God. And, and the world loves to tout that and say that it's religion that's really dangerous. And in a sense, in a sense they're right. Because the heart and the emotional bias that's behind pretty much all of it, even the rationalism, is, is part of the problem. Amen. Because that's human nature. That's the problem. But we like to blame it on crazy, wild-eyed fanatics without realizing that the most dangerous things that have ever happened have been machines. I'm not talking about the human machine. Meticulously, logically, <coughs> rationally organized evil. Amen. Not, not flash-in-the-pan evil. Does the Bible warn against negative emotions and emotionalism? Yes. Yes, it does. The heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Amen. Out of the heart come all kinds of evil. Right? Does the Bible warn against dispassionate intellect and the mind and reasoning of man? Which does it warn more about? In my study, I see at least two warning against the mind for one warning against the heart. And which, what does the Scripture generally suggest as the antidote or the flip side of a of a of a uh, disproportionate intellect intellect what does it generally offer as the remedy brother dan quoted the passage from proverbs where he says um, trust in the lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding so usually the lord is saying you need more heart when there's an understanding problem Amen? There's a theme of scriptures of that nature. Maybe I can just breeze through some of them. Sure. I read this yesterday, but Ephesians 4.18, it says, the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding. So we have an understanding problem, right? What's the remedy? They are excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. So the understanding problem is a heart problem in this equation. In Matthew 13, 13, Jesus says, For this reason I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. But why do they not understand? Because of the hardness of their heart. Amen? And he goes on in that same thing. When, the, when anyone hears the word of God, the word of the kingdom, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches what he has heard out of his heart. <laughs> when we don't understand, it's because it never got into the heart. That's Matthew 13, 19. The evil one takes it from our heart and we lose the understanding. In John, <clears throat> he says, he tells them that Isaiah told them they could not understand because their hearts were hardened. So even, even Scripture, when it comes consistently against the wrong understanding, it offers the remedy as a change of heart, Amen. as an emotional change with God. In the Scripture that he just quoted, where he says, what is the greatest commandment? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Yes, he goes all the way through and Jesus adds mind 
So we are supposed to love the Lord our God with our mind and everything in between. But He starts with the heart. We read yesterday in Romans 10 where He says, from the heart one believes, resulting in salvation. Amen. So it's not an intellect, intellect is not the solution to, the, to, to, to flawed emotions. That is not the solution. We don't need more unanointed intellect. We need relationship with God. We need submission to the Spirit. We don't start as a, as a God and hope to eventually reach the status of a child. We start as a child and hope to grow to be more like the Lord. So Jesus says, come as a little child. And unless you come as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We do, what, what, what is one thing de definitive of children? They do not come with analytical reasoning. They come with something much more intuitive, much more from the heart. And Jesus says, if you don't come that way, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. So both emotions and intellect have got to be submitted to the Spirit. But we have to give God our heart first, and then we will get to the mind. Amen. Have you ever heard of, of somebody who is, uh, thankfully this is kind of rare, but have you ever heard of somebody who is uh, looking for a spouse? and they've got this really long checklist. She needs to be like this, and she needs to be like that, and we're gonna find this, and, it, and she can't believe in that, but she gotta be like this and that, and they're, they're checking everybody out and making sure, seeing who lines up and all that. Do you have a lot of faith for how that relationship is gonna go? No. You know, I mean, we, we, we know intuitively, if I may say it that way, that it doesn't work. That it starts, it's gotta start with love. There's gotta be something in us that says, this is right, Amen. you know, and to trust that our Maker put that inside of us, that we can know if we've got the if we've got the humility, then we can we can trust the things that of God from our heart.